Hi, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, here to let you know about a new and innovative theater major, the BA in Theater and Business Arts at the University of Providence. Get the education and experience you need as a theater artist and the business acumen to succeed in your career. Visit BroadwayBullet.com and stay tuned to the end of the program for more info. Now, enjoy the show. Well, I wouldn't want it to be too perfect every night. It is live after all, it is live. Welcome to Broadway Bullet, Volume 114. I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and we got a lot of great stuff for you this week, don't we always? We've got Amy Wilson from Motherload. We've got Jen Colella, who's going to talk about her career and give us an exclusive in-studio performance. We've got two of the actresses from Corum Boy. We're going to hear a song from the new soundtrack release of How to Save the World and Find True Love in 90 Minutes. But you can't see the title of the CD in 90 Minutes. And uh, we're also going to be talking to director Alex Timbers about the play Lipstick on a Pig and a whole lot more. So what are we really waiting for? Just one thing, for those of you who have been listening to our show online or the MP3 version, if you've got iTunes or an iPod, the way to listen is the enhanced feed, which you can subscribe to through iTunes. It's got chapters and pictures, and you can move back and forward through the show. It makes this like an interactive audio magazine. So that's the episode you want to be listening to if you've got an iPod or iTunes. But let's get right into the show now. On the Boards. The Trials and Tribulations of Motherhood in Manhattan. <laughs> <laughs> that is largely what the next show we're going to be talking with is about. And it's a one-woman show written and starring Amy Wilson, who is right here in the studio to talk with us and deliver a couple uh, comedic monologues from the show. How are you doing today? I'm good, thank you. So uh, it looks like you're about to be a mother again. Yeah, I am. I have a four-year-old boy. Good, huh? Yeah. <laughs> it's all... You have to be careful when you say that. I figured with the show Very topic, careful. I would say. Right, right. I, no, I have a four-year-old son and a two-and-a-half-year-old son, and I'm due with my third in October. So it makes it makes it very interesting to be performing the show every night and be pregnant. It adds a certain level of uh, reality to the show, we think. Now, I'm assuming this gave you some context for writing the show here. Sure. I mean, the show was actually already written, and then I kind of you know sprung on my director and everybody else that I was pregnant, and so we, we did work it into the show, certainly. And I in, in even when I wasn't pregnant, I spent about half of the show being pregnant, talking about being pregnant, playing that anyway. So now it's just uh, very easy for me to slip into. <laughs> so I guess for our listeners, uh, what is the show about? Okay. The well, mother it's, load. It's about... My thesis is that it's a lot harder for us, mothers particularly, but parents in general, to raise kids than it was when we were kids. And I think that that's true, but I also think that that's completely our own fault because we take on ourselves this mother load of expectations that society has of us of of how to raise perfect children. I think that now there's a, a right way to do everything. There's a right way to be pregnant, look like Angelina Jolie. There's a right way to give birth at home in the bathtub, you know, with soft music playing. There's a right way to feed your baby. There's a right way to prepare your baby for nursery school. There's a right nursery school to get your kid into. There's a right and wrong way to to do everything. And these standards, if you choose to accept them, are so excessively high and and changing all the time and, 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 and they're impossible to keep up with. It's impossible in the end to do anything except feel bad about all the ways you fall short, no matter how much you try. And, uh, 
so the show's about that and how to try to put aside the, the mother load and, and just play with your kids, which I think we kind of forget these days. Now, I'm from Montana, and, you know, I don't think a lot of parents stressed out. So I mean, there's a little bit of that, but I don't think it's the same as in New York. Yeah, no, I think New York, I, I, I like to say New York turns it up to 11, you know, that we have our own <laughs> special brand of craziness. Although I have done the show outside New York, and, and I have been surprised at how um, how it does resonate. Yeah. It's crazy everywhere, but we're really crazy, yeah. So, I, I, yeah, and I think, so, I, yeah, I use I use our, our Manhattan craziness as a sort of lens to talk about what I think is a, is a very widespread problem, actually. Well, before we go a little bit further, would you like to grace us with one of the monologues from the show? Okay, sure. This is... Um, this is a little part from the sort of introduction to the show, and it's about why, uh, why dads don't seem to have the same problem with worrying about this stuff as, uh, as mothers do. Okay. Men are immune to the mother load. Dads don't worry about this stuff. Not only that, it doesn't even occur to them that somebody else might have to. What father has ever wasted his brain cells remembering that H&M runs big, Baby Gap runs small, and Ralph Lauren runs really, really small? Whether she works outside the home or not, it is the mom who's in charge of whether the one-year-old is reading ready and who's due for a checkup and who needs new socks and who needs to work on his fine motor skills and who needs to bring 18 things that symbolize spring to school on Monday morning. And if your kids are going to keep up, they have to be the best things that symbolize spring. The best bajillion-dollar double stroller that has to be smuggled in from Spain. The best music class, the best preschool, the best holiday card photo, and the best third birthday party. When my son Connor turned three, I told myself not to go overboard. I was just going to invite his eight playgroup friends and his 11 preschool friends and their 14 siblings. That meant... 35 kids accompanied by 19 adults. I had to rent a party space. And then I had to have give the 35 guests something to do in the party space. So I had craft activities, 20 minutes, and clowns making balloon animals, 20 minutes. Then I still had an hour and 20 minutes to go. So I hired Zany Dan, who plays the guitar and sings Yellow Submarine and charges $200 for half an hour, and had organic grapes cut into non-choking hazard quarters for the kids and hors d'oeuvres for the nannies and sparkling water for the moms. Then I had gift bags with 12 backyardigans-themed gifts inside and made four dozen dairy-free, gluten-free, taste-free cupcakes, and that was it, you know? I kept it simple. If my husband David were in charge of the birthday party... He'd have opened a bag of chips and considered it a rousing success. He wouldn't have wasted his college education obsessing over whether the party favors had an overarching theme. And even if he sent the kids home with, like, masking tape, nobody would care. Because it's cute when dads screw up. All right. So how long has this show been in development for you? It was probably a year and a half ago I started writing it, and it was about nine months from first, you know, new notebook, motherload. Lights up from the, from the first day that I started writing it to the first time that I performed it was was about nine months exactly, interestingly enough, and that was about a year ago, and so it's been um, developing since then. Um, this is this is its first true full fledged production long run that it's had, which is really fun because even in the um, we're early in our run, but, but even with the performances we've had so far, we're we're working with things, we're changing things based on the audience response, and it's really fun to have a long run to let it sort of develop and hopefully find an audience. How did you find time to do this with the kids? <laughs> <laughs> That's, your kids are young. My kids are young. This was I was able to do it. I started it when my older one started preschool three mornings a week last year. So I had 
I had nine hours a week. I'd drop them off and I'd go to Starbucks and I'd write until it was time to pick them up. My husband has some saying. I don't know if he made it up or if he heard it somewhere. If you want, if you want something done, give it to a busy person. And I do think that that's true. I have, I have written other shows in the past, but it took me a lot longer. I think I had a lot to say on this topic, but I also had 15 minutes to finish before I had to go pick up my kid. And, and that, really, uh, that really motivates you to get it done. So uh, I, it, it took me a couple of months. And then working with my director, Julie Kramer, she developed the piece with me. She, you know, I came in with a sheaf of loose leaf paper and, and she helped me shape it and turn it into a show. How much stuff had to go? How much came? Did you? Well, that's interesting because people people keep saying, "Why don't you say more about this?" Or you should talk about you should talk about strollers and how hard it is to find the perfect stroller. And I should, but it would be like Nicholas <laughs> Nickleby. We need to take a dinner break and come back for more. The show can only be so long. But uh, the most interesting thing was, as I was trying to figure out what the show is about, I really was struggling with this. I had a um, I had a two year old and a baby, and I really was struggling with not in, not enjoying them. Just just getting through every day can be such a slog and such a, boys, boys, get your shoes on. And, and, and you kind of live like that, huffing and losing your patience and, and being 15 minutes late for everything and there's nothing in the refrigerator for dinner and living in this stressed out place. I, I discovered I w- as I was working on the show that that's where I was. I wasn't really enjoying being with my kids. I mean, I was sometimes, but day to day, no. Overall, I was sort of merely surviving. And I realized, Jesus, that's not how I want to do things. I want to, uh, I want to look back on this as the happiest time of my life, not the, the busiest, the most stressed, the hardest. All of those things, yes, but also the happiest. And so I needed to change, change my attitude. And so that's what the show's about, but it's, I continue to tr- struggle with that every day, how to, how to do less, calm down, be with them is uh, is an ongoing thing. Yeah, you know, as a marketing angle for the show, you should set aside a daycare room. <laughs> right, exactly. By the theater that that mothers can come to the show and drop off their... <laughs> we thought about that, although like, I, I have I have left my kid in places like that, and one time he came back and he needed stitches, so that's, that's scary. I've, my two-year-old has had stitches twice before his second birthday, and my other one has, has a chipped tooth and broke his arm. So, you know, I'm, that's two boys for you. I'm going to have a lot of trips to the emergency room. We have another monologue segment to, for you to do with us. Do you yes, this, this, one up? this is about the, the beginning of the process of applying to nursery school, which everybody who lives in New York has some sense of this being a truly daunting uh, process. But until you get into it, it's, there's jargon and, and rules and things that you're just supposed to kind of figure out on your own, and it can be very intimidating. So this is, this is a, from that part of the show. When I was growing up in Scranton, Pennsylvania, my mother signed me up for the nursery school on the corner and walked me over there the first day. She didn't care if it was the best school for me. It was the one on our block. Okay, that's not how it happens around here, but I was not going to lose my mind over this. I was just going to make a few phone calls. Good morning, meaningful Montessori of Manhattan. Hi, I'm calling for some information for my son for next fall. How old will he be? Two. 2.0? No, two and a half. 2.6? Is that two and a half? How many years and how many months will your child be next September? Oh, uh, two years and nine months, 2.9. Children must be 2.11 to attend meaningful Montessori of Manhattan. Good morning. So in Manhattan parlance, Connor was a 2.9. As I quickly found out, this was acceptable but not ideal. Being 2.9 made him a little bit too young to apply to certain schools who wanted young threes. 
2.11s are considered young threes. 2.9s, on the other hand, are old twos and therefore not the same thing at all. Try to keep up here. For private schools in Manhattan, the best birthdays are September to December. For public schools, the best birthdays are January to April. If you have a summer baby, it's time to consider homeschooling. Now, previous to Motherload, what have been some of your other projects as a writer, actress? Before kids, BK, I was on, I was on two sitcoms. I was on um, Norm with Norm MacDonald for a while as his, as his nemesis in the office. And then I was on a show called Daddy-O with Michael Chiklis, which really only ran for half a season on NBC. But I played his nemesis, his annoying sort of what I, what I call a sanctimommy, a next-door neighbor who was very prissy, Kind of like Shirley from Laverne and Shirley, mm-hmm. or kind of church lady esque, you know, just really, really uptight. And so, so uh, I didn't, and I didn't have kids then, but it certainly prepared me for working on this show, I guess. And I, and I did that, but I was in LA. My husband was here, and uh, so then I moved back here, did some plays, but we wanted to have kids. So that was, gosh, probably six years ago. I moved home from LA, and and uh, it's a tough call for a young actress to make. Sure, yeah. I mean, it's not like New York is a bad. I, I, I think. Most actors would rather live in New York, would rather go from off-Broadway no, show to this. I think it's a tough call for a young actress to decide to have kids. Oh, yeah, it was. You're right. You're right. I, I sort of told myself, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to you know, hit a certain age, and I'm either going to throw in the towel and say, okay, I tried it, and now I'm going to be a mom, because I knew that was non-negotiable. I was going to be a parent. Um, but I figured I'd get to the point where I either would not have gotten anywhere or I would be, you know, Julia Louis-Dreyfus and bringing my kids to the set and no big deal. And instead, of course, I was somewhere in between. I was working. I wasn't, uh, I wasn't famous. And I was in between jobs, which is not a good place to be getting pregnant. Nobody wants to hire. If you're, if you're, preg- if you're on the show already and you get pregnant, they'll work with you. They're not so interested in hiring you when you're, when you're pregnant and not part <laughs> of the show. Um, so you're right. It was, it was a, a sacrifice. And certainly the last five years of my life, have, I have not worked that much. I've been pregnant half the time and gaining the weight, losing the weight, being with the babies. But um, uh, this was a, a really great way to sort of bring the two, the two things that are most important to me together. Yeah, no, it's, and it's great to see that it's worked out for you. Yeah, thank you. Now, where can people catch Motherload? Motherload is playing at the Sage Theater, which is 711 7th Avenue, which is a very lucky address, don't you think? <laughs> um, right by the M&M world. <laughs> Look for the M&M sign and you'll find us. Tuesday through Saturday nights. And we have a special Wednesday mom's matinee at 11, which works out because you can see at 11, you're out by 1230, and you can still go pick up your kids at school. And where can they go for tickets? Ticketcentral.com. And I understand your website has a lot of, like, yes. clips and you stuff. You can also go to our, our, our website. is very fun. It's motherloadshow.com, one word. And load is spelled L-O-A-D. And, uh, yeah, it has clips from the show, and, and it's interactive, lots of pictures, and we think it's a great website. All right. Well, I thank you so much for stopping down here as you get ready to open. Thank you very much. It's a big week. And, oh, how long does the show run? It runs through June 16th. So people have actually plenty of time to It runs, it. right. It runs from now through Mother's Day all the way up to Father's Day. So. Hey, well, thanks again for stopping by. Thank you very much. Up close. When Georgia Stitt was in, she pointed out to me that Jen Colella should be a much bigger star than she is. And <laughs> when she said what Jen was in, I fully agreed. I saw her in High Fidelity and thought she did a fantastic job. She's done a lot of things. she got some upcoming projects coming up, and she stopped by in the studio to talk with us. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? Good. You've done a lot of things that, you know, <laughs> like High Fidelity, you know, should have gone a little further. A little, so. <laughs> yes. 
perhaps longer than two weeks, a little further. Um, it was a great project. You know, yeah, I think what you might be getting to is the fact that I've been the lead of some shows that haven't been uh, blockbusters as far as... But you've had uh, a lot of leads. You've had, like, so many leads that, you know, I've actors would kill lucky. for. Yes, I've been very lucky. I've only been here for a little over four years, uh, right out of graduate oh. school from University mm. of California at Irvine. So I feel like I've been really lucky, and I wouldn't change one step of the journey that I've been on so far. So I understand, like, for instance, you had to make a choice uh, between shows when coming to Broadway this fall. Yeah, well, you know, it started, um, I was involved with, uh, um, first it was Trailer Park, the Great American Musical Trailer Park I did at the um, uh, Musical Theater Festival that you guys cover, and um, that was a blast, and then when it came to Off-Broadway, they offered me the role of Pippi, the kleptomaniac stripper, and I had to turn that down, um, because I had just been cast um, in Ring of Fire that was going to Nashville first to work with them and Richard Maltby and so I was playing young June Carter Cash and I thought absolutely so I did that and then when they were coming into Broadway Richard Maltby asked me if I would please join them and I said oh I've just been cast in Twyla Tharp's new show The Times They Are Changing and I gotta work I've never had any dance training in my life so the fact that I was a lead in a Twyla Tharp show I, I had to, to just take it and to work with her um, so I went with Twyla and we did a great run at the Old Globe and then right before that came here it was coming up around the same time as High Fidelity and I um, I fortunately was picked up by High Fidelity and, and went on with them so yeah it's um, and it's not you know I didn't leave any project because I lost faith in it or didn't believe in it I believed in every single thing I've been a part of it's just kind of the way uh, the wind was blowing I try to be open with whatever opportunities are available to me even when it came down to that, the the Twilight Thorpe piece, you ended up having to make another choice yet again. Well, that choice was was better made for me. Twyla told me when we first came in that um, the producers had another vision for what the leading lady might be like, and I still didn't know if I was going to do High Fidelity, although I wanted to. So I said, absolutely. You know, I believe everything happens for a reason. Go see people, and and you know, I still believe I'm the best one for this job. But if I'm not, I'm not. I don't. Uh, I try not to sweat things like that, you know? I, <clears throat> I believe there are enough pieces of pie for everybody, and if one role isn't for me, then I try to do my best to let it go and trust that something um, something is, is coming along that might be better. Your uh, role in High Fidelity, you got to kind of play two personalities yes. in that. <laughs> yes. Uh, Laura, um, the character that I played was a lawyer, and she had just turned corporate and was kind of upset about that, but definitely like straight-laced lawyer. She was in the middle of um, the change that you go through when you just turn 30 and start to realize, oh, I'm no longer a kid anymore. I can't really be the rock chick that I was and, and make it in the corporate world. And so she was kind of battling that and certainly weighing in on the side of corporate world and appreciating that. And, um, you know, I had a flashback in, in the show where I got to sing a rock and roll song in this fantasy sequence and um, had backup chicks, and it was incredible. It was a lot of fun. So I think we're going to play that now. Right on. So uh, this is number five with a bullet. Number five with a bullet. All right. I was feeling bad for you Cause I left you with a broken heart But now you've really pissed me off And you know that that's not smart did you think you were gonna get off scot-free? Don't you know there's no getting over me? Mm-hmm. You think this breakup won't affect you If you just refuse to let it And there's no need to sweat it Well, I've come to claim my spots 
in the work and I know you like working with a lot of new things and mm -hmm. in fact a little bit later on you're going to be doing a special live performance here in the studio. I am. But uh, before we get to that um, you were telling me that there's a project you're kind of working on 
at the moment that's really near and dear to your heart that you're really hoping goes someplace? So great. I um, just returned from Los Angeles. I was there for pilot season, um, and I was contacted while I was there by a gentleman named Bob Bartley, and his writing partner, Danny Whitman, have been working on this for quite some time. It's called Dance With Me, and it's a musical about Desi Arnaz and Lucille Ball. And it begins when they're 16 years old and shows their struggles as they're trying to break into um, into Hollywood, into the business, and how they met, which was incredible, and then their journey together right up until the very first taping of the I Love Lucy show, which of course made them both so iconic. And um, it was I played Lucille Ball, and it was a dream come true. I you know I just have so much respect for her in my eyes. She's the very first comedian and. Uh, I was in high school when she died. I wore black. You know what I mean? Like I <laughs> totally, totally, um, just honored to to be a part of something that um, that they wrote about Lucille Ball and to play her. Especially, it was quite quite a privilege. Now you've done a fair amount of new musicals, so I imagine you've also done a fair amount of readings like this Tons. and performances. What what your, what are your thoughts about these readings? Do you treat them like a regular performance, or do Absolutely. they feel differently? Uh, no, not to me. I'm just as proud of, of a reading I've done behind a table and a block, black box in the middle of nowhere as I am of any Broadway show. I, I don't see them any differently at but all. But does it feel different knowing that it's a lot a lot of times more business people out there and not just a regular Sure, yes. Crowd? The crowd is a little different. <laughs> the suits are a little different. But Tell us again, how it feels. Tell us how I, the crowd feels I at guess, these things. You know, uh, the difference is... Um, Oh, well, there's a lot, like, I do a lot of concerts around, too. Like, I, I just did this great concert with Georgia Stead at Birdland to um, promote her new CD that we're going to hear some of. And um, that crowd was there because they know who Georgia is, and they know that this is going to be incredible, and there's tons of amazing stars there. And so the energy there is just off the hook, and everybody's there to love and support and hoot and holler. And at a Broadway show, um, you know, there's thousands of people and they come from all walks of life. And the energy is also very high because it's a Broadway show and they're ready to dig you. Um, when the, the producers come in for these readings, it can only be, you know, 50 of them. And they're just seeing what the potential is. So they're not there to just laugh and give you energy, although most of them do. Um, but it's not the same. It's certainly, it's certainly a different feel. And of course, the writers are you know, you can see them biting their nails and <laughs> writing things down furiously as you're performing, which is a little different. But I, I think that um, workshops and readings and being a part of all of these things in the beginning stages, is that's what being an artist is all about. And I think it's the lifeblood of New York. I, it's what keeps me on my toes and, and keeps me proud to be a part of it all, you know. And you're also involved with it. Don't quit your night job. Oh. <laughs> they call it don't quit your night job because it's a bunch of Broadway stars, um, most of whom are in shows right now and so the premise is that they're going to like run from their Broadway show to the Ha Comedy Club and do this uh, great night of sketch comedy and improv and there's tons and tons of exciting um, huge stars that are going to come in and play with us. I'm one of the cast members so I'll get to play um, hopefully you know 10 or 12 times in the next eight weeks um, but amazing people are going to be a part of this. I'm really excited about it. It seems like you keep busy with a lot of projects. Do you, do you ever have any downtime? <laughs> I, you know, I do. I do have some downtime. And instead of dreading the downtime, as a lot of actors do, and say, oh, God, when am I going to work again? Am I ever going to work again? I've tried to train myself to appreciate 
those uh, moments as gifts from the universe where I can chill and I'm going to go rent a house this summer in Hilton Head Island in South Carolina where I'm from and I'm going to go to Provincetown for a week and I, um, I try to schedule downtime for myself. I think it's just as important as working really hard. All right. Well, we got a special treat here before we conclude. Georgia <laughs> has come back in the studio to play for you. Yay! A song Hi, that you... Hi, Georgia Stitt. <laughs> song that you did on her album, mm-hmm. This Ordinary Thursday. Yes. Uh, is there anything you'd like to tell us about why you why you took on doing this song before you sing it? I, I would do anything for Georgia, is <laughs> the short answer. Um, I just think she's a tremendous musician. I'm really excited about this album coming up. It's the first time I've ever been on an album. Um, and I couldn't be more proud. She's a tremendous musician. This song is one of one of the best tunes I've ever had the pleasure to sing. So I'm really excited for it to be out in the world. All right, you ready to sing it? Big wings. Twelve miles north of Mississippi. Nothing but cotton and road outside of my window. The sun beats down and the air is dry. I think of him as the clouds roll by And I watch the airplanes overhead And my soul feels dead Three or four weeks between each visit A phone call each morning saying, hon, it won't be that long. I try to fake that I'm strong and tough, but I can't get to him soon enough. And again, those airplanes zoom right by. But where the hell am I? Big wings take to where he is I don't want to wait around anymore Lift me up from this broken place into the sky to keep moving All I feel right now is trapped Just beyond those clouds the light is improving Stuck beneath this sky my spirit is sapped I don't think it matters how this stagnant cycle shatters But I can't just sit here staring at these walls
Well, Jen, I want to thank you for swinging by the studio and Thanks, singing Michael. and telling us about all your upcoming projects. I certainly hope you'll come through again. And it would be my pleasure to do so. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Thanks. Right on. The Call Board. All right. Welcome to The Call Board. And mark your calendars. May 15th, the Tony Award nominations are announced that morning. Start planning your parties now. And... Any aspiring actors out there can audition for the new musical of the film Shrek via video. <laughs> That's via, via video. Yeah, you can go to our website and click on the Volume 114 show notes for more information on that and, of course, anything else you hear about on the program. We also have some contest winners. Yep, we've given out some more stuff. Remember, get to broadwaybullet.com and become a registered user or else you don't hear about these contests. And we make it real easy to win. Uh, for the Grey Garden CD, we had five to give away. And they are going to David Folds of Waterloo, Ontario, Canada. Elaine Nystrom of Bahama, North Carolina. Jim Wicker of Tampa, Florida. Mary Margaret Fields of Mississauga, Ontario, Canada. Don't the name of the town and the name of the winner sound like they belong in a musical? Mary Margaret Fields. Yes, you do. You belong in a musical. And Seraph Lim of Alhambra, California. Those five win our Grey Garden CD. And we also, they told us they might, and they did. Uh, the producers for Talk Radio put up five more pairs of tickets, and the winners are for that. Uh, I believe all these people are from New York. Myra Wong, James Amodio, Alana Raider, Dimitri Russell, and David L. Williams. Yes, congratulations, you've got a pair of tickets to Talk Radio. We'll be getting all those out to you shortly. Now, we really want to especially encourage New York and New York area listeners to register because we've got shows wanting to give away tickets and not a whole lot of our registered users are from New York yet. So it's, it's hard for us to even give away as many as some of the shows are wanting to. So sign up. You get free shows. What could be better than just listening to Broadway Bullet by itself, of course? All right. I'll be back next week probably with some more contest winners. Oh, yes, and I have to put out a big thank you. I was at the Commercial Theater Institute's Producers Workshop last weekend, and I do have to say, don't miss it next year. It It's chock full of great information if you're interested in getting involved in producing or investing or just want to learn more about how the commercial theater is run. Absolutely, absolutely indispensable information and top-notch panelists. But I got to give a thanks to the people who are in the audience uh, and attending the panel who actually listen to my program. You know who you are. You applauded when I went up and asked a question. <laughs> I think I was the only question taker who got applause. It was embarrassing, but a lot of fun. And you know what? Because of that, a lot of people came up to me after going, what is this? What is this thing that everybody's applauding for? So, uh yeah, you you helped you helped us make an impression. That's for sure. So thank you very much, and uh, hope we continue to excite you with great interviews, contests, giveaways, and more. And if you have any general announcements you think would be suited for the call board, just drop me an email at thecallboard at broadwaybullet.com. On the boards. A lot of people are knowingly taking a chance on the play Corum Boy, which is a play with a cast of thousands, a choir, and a lot of special effects. It's based on the 2000 English novel by Jamila Gavin. And we've got two of the actors from Corum Boy here with us today. We've got Kristen Milioti and Laura Heisler with us. How are you guys doing? Hi. Hello. Uh, for our, our astute listeners, might recognize you, Laura, from when you were on here before with The Given. Mm -hmm. And uh, now I'm pleased to say that you're making your Broadway debut since then, That's correct? That's right, yeah. With this show. That's right. So uh, I guess tell us a little bit about uh, Corn Boy. It's a fascinating play. You guys both play guys. <laughs> At one point, I play a little girl 
We play brother and sister. We play brother and sister. I play an eight-year-old boy, and she plays my five-year-old five sister. sister. And that, those are our primary roles. And then uh, my character gets shipped off to boarding school and doesn't come back in Act 2, but Kristen's character does actually age to about 13. I blossom into a, a nice young woman. But yes. then throughout the play, we were also playing... All kinds of young boys and young girls. And I play a man at one point. That's a right. grown man. A grown the man shortest at the man <laughs> at the ball. It's funny. There's a, it's a cast. Of, there's a principal cast of 20 actors, not including the choir, which is 20 other actors. Uh, so there's 40 people in all. And then there's like a seven-piece orchestra, I think, too, which accompanies mm-hmm. us. And among all of us in the 20-person sort of principal ensemble, everybody has a primary role or sometimes two primary roles. And then... Everybody at any given moment is also called on to play the ocean or, or a tree in the forest a mule, or a mule a gargoyle or, or just, you know, a, a choir boy or an orphan girl or... Uh, yeah. It switches so so quickly back and forth and we get changed. Actually, for most of the first act, we get changed on stage. Right. It's very um, meta-theatrical. In this sort of like choreographed way. And then the second act is more just frantic, quick changing <laughs> <Backstage>. stage. <laughs> but it's it's wonderful because it means that everybody is on stage pretty much the entire play and mm-hmm. you're watching you have the experience of watching the story itself and then you also have the sort of meta theatrical experience of watching 40 actors create a piece in front of you and show you the tools that they're using to create it it's not meant i mean when four actors become a mule they have you know they're carrying a wheel and they have sort of saddlebags on them but otherwise it's their body and their voices that's creating right. the mule and there's even uh, sort of a chance to see the uh, in art terms uh, Perspective, because one of the wheels is sort of smaller to show visually perspective. You know, if, as you look at it from the audience, I mean, it's really beautiful and really yeah. innovative and inventive, and something. And just the, I think the raw theatricality is something you don't often get to see, certainly in a commercial Broadway. Well, and it keeps production. us all in the same show too, mm-hmm. because there's no you know running off and on for extended periods of time. We're all very much in the same world. I mean, with the choir, with the cast, mm-hmm. she's sort of Melly has sort of melded these two worlds together as one functioning Right, and she wants to show how the actor transforms from playing this role to this role to this role to this role, crossing gender, crossing age, crossing uh, species, (laughs) crossing sometimes even, like, (laughs) object into human or animal form. And that's... Really exciting, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, it definitely has a very, very big symbolic, grandiose theatricality about it. Yeah. And then, when, especially when you add in the the twenty person choir, you right. know, from above the in the rafters, it, it really is a pretty unique theatrical experience. Oh yeah, it's really sweeping. I think, and and I really got to applaud whoever whoever thought of doing this because uh, they can't have been thinking that this was going to make money. There is so <laughs> the, the weekly running cost of this has to be enormous right. uh, for yeah. a play, and it, even though it's got. Tons of music. <laughs> yeah, I mean, from what Melly told us, you know, that I think the producers are quite aware of, of what a, an enormous financial venture this is um, or risk. Or, uh, but they saw it in London and just loved it so much that they uh, wanted to bring it over here. And they felt that it had to be seen. And hopefully it introduces another kind of theatrical form in a commercial. And who knows? It venue. could be the next Cats. Yeah, you never know. People have said it can't be done <laughs> yeah. before. And now, so far, word of mouth has been so amazing that we're hoping that, you know, that'll just keep filling the seats, which it seems to be doing. I definitely am hoping this, like I said, can find its place because it is such a, a risk. Well, it was a yeah. huge hit in London, and it was such a big hit that it came back. It was brought back for a second season, so it's run... Two years. It's two years. Now. Well, yeah. not 
continuously through the year, but it's run two different right. seasons um, in London and to sold out houses. And so and so far, I think we're all getting emails and calls from friends who are just saying, you know, I saw it and I just sent an email to everybody on my list that they have to come see this because it's yeah, special. There's been a there's been a great response. Definitely. Well, I noticed it had a hyphen in it that you don't usually see, but it's probably, you know, given the theatricality of it, it's probably a given the fact that the director designed the show, too. Yeah. Oh, my God. She's so hands-on. I mean, everything, every little detail is within, you know, her and she, her co-designer, Ty Green, and they're such on the same wavelength. Mm-hmm. There's, like, hardly, you know, I think because we did have, we do have the benefit of them having done it before, mm-hmm. it sort of went along. It's still very much the American cast's show. I mean, we're not just mimicking what was done in London mm-hmm. at all. She totally gave us creative leeway. But I think because they had both worked on it before, they're so in the same on the same page with each other that um, it's pretty incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Melly co-designed with Ty the set and the costumes, and she obviously directed it. And then she, I think, also was on hand to help with the adaptation. Uh, yeah. I think she was a, p- a part of that process. So she's kind of... And she's, she's, Julie Taymor from, from, from Britain. Yeah, and she's very close with Adrian Sutton, too, who did um, all the music, the non-handle music. The music um, is really, really glorious, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it is glorious. Now, do you sing any of that as part of the boys' choir? Oh, yeah, we, we sing, sing constantly. Yeah. We, uh, because yeah. we had to learn how to sing with that a vibrato. I'm Billy, and you're William, which is pretty much one That's of the right. same. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, we do, we sing, in, we sing as the children, we in a sort of little quartet we sing as the boys choir at two different times in the show and then we sing sort of in an ensemble way throughout and then in addition to sort of clear-cut songs or numbers there's also kind of just musical accompaniment throughout that isn't always something that the audience might be aware of they're just going to sort of absorb it as part of the scene but like at one point we're all playing trees in the forest and it's a really dark scene where where babies are being buried and um, we're all called upon to sort of stand and sway and create kind of a, a, a vocal atmosphere by humming at different intervals. Yeah. And I don't even know if the audience is going, oh, they're singing, but they're, but it, it adds to the atmosphere. And there's a lot of that kind of sound oral augmentation, as it were. Well, maybe yeah. at this point, as you mentioned, the, the baby's being buried, I don't think we should give away the whole plot in this thing, but maybe it's worthwhile to explain why the play is called Quorum Boy. I mean, there was there is the legend of the Quorum Man, who is this man who claims it's true. Actually, mm-hmm. it's this um, it's this man who claimed to take or uh, children who were unwanted because you know having a child out of wedlock was so incredibly taboo, and you just you know weren't allowed. But a lot of times, these women didn't have any choice; they were being abused by their caretakers. You know, if they were maids or if they were wards. Um, and he, this man, legend has it, would, uh, you know, promise to take these children to the Quorum Foundling Hospital, but instead would either kill them or sell them off into slave labor. Or he would, you know, as uh, along the way traveling to sell them off to some awful mill or something, they, would, they were so malnourished and abused that they, that they would die. This particular scene is, is about this man who poses to be, to take these children to Quorum Hospital to give them a better future when in fact he's... You know the babies. Most of them have died en route, and they're being buried in the woods. Yeah, one baby is still alive, and yeah, mm-hmm. and it doesn't yeah. go really well for that baby. <laughs> Needless to say, and it all unfolds. Yeah. yeah, I think a lot of universities should be on the lookout for this as a production. 
uh, it's got that great big cast. They can use their <laughs> they can use sure. their whole department and that's true. and get involved. And well, hopefully both things will happen, and it will just have all <laughs> yeah. kinds of all kinds of future lives. I, I know that Merrimax, I think, right, has bought the rights to a rights film. to create a film with it. That'll probably happen in the next few years, and so it's all over the place. This is kind of neat. We started every rehearsal with uh, like a forty minute yoga class because Melly's <laughs> just that cool. Mm-hmm. And and also then following that with like a vocal warm up and then there was a lot of improvisation and I mean the script is the script the words didn't change but there was a lot of improvisation to create this <laughs> to create backstory and to kind of find what the scenes would be so it was a really collaborative experience yeah and I think that that adds to the feeling you get when you're watching it that it's a real ensemble and that it's kind of the best of what you want to see and sort of I'd like to think and kind of yeah. what ensembles can create. That nothing else, that you know, in a theater that nobody else, you're not going to see that in a movie. You're not going to see that in a TV show. Like, this is sort of theater in its purest form, is watching a group of people tell you a whole story with their bodies. And actually, too, just going back to Melly's rehearsal process, the first day we came in, you know, we had like a meet and greet. We did a little yoga, and then she was like, okay, we're going to get it up on its feet. Just improvise the whole show. Put your scripts down. You've all read it. And yeah, kind of guess along the lines of what the... Guess what the lines are, yeah. guess what you're doing. And we did this, like, incredible three-hour improv yeah. um, of people playing people's consciousness, consciences. Yeah, conscience. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Everybody would just dive in and help create the scene, even, oh if God. even if your character wasn't technically in it. And that, again, that just informs, I think, the piece that it is now. You know, we would play, like, the walls of a house. We would play, like, clocks in the house. We would play, I mean, everything. And after seeing that is when she, she made, you know, she made certain decisions about oh, yeah. how this show, how we were going to serve this show in different ways. Mm-hmm. They added, they added a lot of stuff. So. Yeah. Like some of that oral augmentation. You've got to use that as a selling point. There's oral <laughs> augmentation in our show. That's right. <laughs> if people want to see how you turn a giant proscenium stage into a big underwater swimming scene. Oh, yeah. Uh, we do it. They, they better not wait because this isn't the type of show that you wait around a year and see what's going on. It's Just you wait. Get in but they should come see it so they see the oh, original I hope cast. So, I hope so. I hope it does lie. But I'm saying that they can't take it for granted that this is going to be around. They need to get down and support yeah. this show and support this kind of vision. Absolutely. If, they, oh, if yeah. this is what they want to see, they, time to put your money where your mouth is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Kristen, just as a final word, this this isn't your Broadway debut, but is this your Broadway debut for... Performing. Re- <laughs> for having... Uh, yeah, <laughs> I understudied um, Alison Pill last year in Lieutenant of Inishmore, and I did get to go on, which was awesome, but uh, this is very different, and a completely different show. I mean, that was like, you know, black comedy, Martin McDonough, um, actually a, a bang-bang, shoot 'em up sort of show. Uh, that we used like five gallons of stage blood. It was crazy. And then this, though, I'm actually, you know, I feel I've had, I've been with this from the beginning, and it's been an extremely gratifying experience. Very different. I think there's nine people or something like that in our show making their Broadway debut. And yeah. how really is it neat. for you, Laura? Is it everything you expected? It's great. It's <laughs> awesome. It's it's really yeah. It's great. It's you couldn't ask for a better group of people to make a debut with. That's true. And I think nobody takes it for granted, and that's really nice. It's just there's not an ego in the bunch. It's just a great group. Yeah. All right. Well, I thank you, Kristen and Laura, so much for coming down. I know you got to run right over to perform, you know. We do. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks so much, and have a great evening. Thank Thank you. you. On the positive side. Hey, this is Marty Cooper once again on the positive side, and... 
I am kind of positive today. I had escaped reality last week. Uh, my wife and I were off in Disney World. We just forgot about the rest of the world and enjoyed ourselves. Uh, I'm back, and I found it funny. I turned on, I opened a Playbill online this morning and uh, read uh, uh, Robert Simonson, his talk about how the critics this year don't seem to be happy with anything. Uh, actually, in my recollections, I think the only show that got unanimous good reviews this year was Spring Awakening. It's great that it got great reviews, and I loved it, and uh, people I know love it, but a show where one of the main songs is about the joys of masturbation, another song is totally, well, you know the rest. It's not everyone's cup of tea. So of the shows that people could go to, none of them really got great reviews. I was surprised. I thought Legally Blonde would be unanimously good. In people's views of it, they kept saying it's wonderfully entertaining, but uh, empty. What do you want but entertainment? You know, I keep preaching about Les Miserables, and uh, if you want really deep story, uh, go see that. Uh, go see Hamlet. Go see something really serious. Seeing Legally Blonde, you're not seeing anything deep but you are fantastically entertained for about two and a half hours. The other show that got unanimous re reviews was Pirate Queen. Those were unanimously bad. I happen to like the show. I don't know how long it's going to last, but I found the show very entertaining, as you've heard in previous podcasts. As far as I can see, nothing is really great this year, and it's going to be... Uh, hard. I think it's going to be di difficult finding uh, a good Tony nominations. I found it also funny in Mr. Simonson's article, uh, he talked about the reviews of love music, uh, and he says it's uh, tedious but unmissable, which I find really funny. I found it also quite funny, uh, his uh, summation of the reviews of Curtains, is that people kept saying that they didn't know whether it was a good old-fashioned show or just old-fashioned. What's wrong with old-fashioned? Uh, isn't that what the theater is all about? Isn't, uh, aren't, we, aren't we looking back at our theatrical forefathers and seeing how things were done? Aren't we learning from them? I had a great time at Curtains, although it's one of the shows I find slightly overrated. Not as overrated as Jersey Boys. I had to say that again, but slightly overrated. It's going to be fun next week. I think on the 15th they're announcing the Tony nominations. It's going to be fun to see what does get nominated. Uh, I know the actress, uh, the actress category is going to be just stuffed and jammed with people. Uh, who knows what's going to come up. But in any case, it will be interesting. I want to thank you for your kind emails. Uh, people have emailed me. Once again, if you have any ideas of topics I can talk about, or uh, if you have any comments on what I've had to say, you can email me at broadwaymarty, one word, at aol.com. Once again, this is Marty Cooper. Stay on the positive side. On the Positive Side is brought to you by The Colony, online at colonymusic.com or in the heart of the theater district at 49th and Broadway. You can always say, I found it at The Colony.
last fall, we interviewed the writers of the musical How to Save the World and Find True Love in 90 Minutes with book and lyrics by Jonathan Karp, music by Seth Weinstein. Yes, they're both here in the studio. Uh, you can check that out in Broadway Bullet Volume 11. Well, now the original off-Broadway cast recording has been released on Hi-Fi Recordings, and you can find out more information at savetheworldandfindtruelove.com. Uh, we're going to play a track from this. Uh, this is kind of a fun one. It's called I'm in Love with a Terrorist, and it's sung by the character Violet Zipper, who is played by Nicole Ruth Snelson. Hope you enjoy. He's as dangerous as sin With daggers of stubble on his chin He's a man on a mission Who knows every position He's like a magician with a surgeon's precision. He's big, he's strong, and I know this is wrong. Cause he's a terrorist. Lots of black, he's great in the sack, and I want him so much, it scares me. He's a rebel with a cause, he breaks women's hearts, then he breaks some laws. He's tough, he's cool, and I know I'm being a fool, cause he you know, actually, he's very idealistic. He's, um, he's really more of an activist, but I'm pretty sure my friends at the UN would say, I'm in love with a terrorist. With other guys, the sex was always sweet and vanilla. It turns out all I needed was a Marxist gorilla. Find the original off-Broadway cast recording to How to Save the World and Find True Love in 90 Minutes at Amazon.com. On the boards. In the theater world and art world and music, it's often been said you can't put lipstick on a pig. But that is exactly what our next director is trying to do. Uh, at least the, the lipstick on the pig is actually the name of the play. And we've got director David Epstein here with us. How are you doing? I'm doing good, Michael. How are you? Good. So, uh... This is kind of a different play you're, you're saying before we started talking. Yeah, it's, um, you know, I was saying earlier that um, when 
when I first read the play, it seemed very familiar. You know, it seemed very, it's a family play, it's a kitchen play, uh, people coming to terms with the past. But as you continue to read it and read it over and over and start to watch actors doing it, you begin to realize that the language is a lot more in-depth and rich than you had originally assumed. And what was once a kitchen play, uh, seemed like a little American, almost melodrama, actually turned into something that felt way more... Chekhovian and Chekhov-ish, if there is such a word. And it really does feel that way, where if you, you can interpret it 500 different ways, and we can try it all those different ways, but it, there only seems to be one way to get each scene right. And um, that has been something that I haven't experienced really since art school, when you were just back at NYU, just messing around with different forms and stuff like that, seeing how you could interpret it. But this one really is like... It has to be the way it is. And it's, it's kind of amazing. And once once you make the discovery, you go, oh, my God, that's, it's so clear. And then the next scene almost makes sense. And the next, and of course, that's the natural progression of theater. It's always that way. But with this play, it seemed like that in particular. So, now, this is set in a hospital? Yeah, it's set in a hospital over a period of weeks. And uh, there's um, there's a number of characters. There's, there's four characters. Three of them are family members. One is... Uh, uh, there's a daughter who comes back from uh, – she's a professor at UCLA and she comes back to her father who is this big sort of grizzly bear of a man and the performance by uh, by John Farrell. is very – got an amazing presence, this guy. But all the performances are great. And um, and then there's also the, the brother and then the uh, transplant coordinator and um, – these three people in the family, Eaton, AJ, and Blake, they have these sort of dark conversations with each other about the past, and they find out all these things about one another. And then this transplant coordinator comes in all chipper and, hello, hey, we're going to take your kidney out. It's really fun. And so it's, a, it's an interesting dichotomy of, of sort of like deep, dark scenes that are really rich with a lot of incredible dialogue, um, really great writing, and then this sort of like... 50s character who comes in who's just like going you know, like, to you know, rub alcohol on people and make them feel good. It's... It's an, the more I think about Lipstick on a Pig, the more I fall in love with it. And, and it, it's true. The, the cast and I, we, every day we come in with these discoveries. And, and because we're in love with the script, the, the process itself has, has gotten really magical. So, so that, the magic answer has nothing to do with, yes, it takes place in a hospital, but yeah, it <laughs> takes place in a hospital. <laughs> I think one of the stories about this that's really interesting, especially given that you know, we're an internet program here, is how you happen to meet the writer and get this job. I mean, in fact, I think a lot of directors just wonder how you get a job in general. Yeah, I, I still <laughs> wonder that. I'm, I'm amazed. You know, in the last year, I've landed a couple roles and, or a couple jobs, and it, it's – I. I don't have representation. I sort of I'm out there like fielding it on my own. And a lot of director friends I have as well are doing the same thing. There's not many agents out there. But when it came to Linda, the writer, um, I found her online through an actress friend of mine named Kristen Woodburn. Um, she does a lot of horror flicks. And but but Linda horror was, flicks or horror flicks horror. <laughs> she, you know, she, she Kristen Woodburn she grabs a gun and she shoots people with a magnum and says, "Die, zombie." She's a pretty good actress who set me up with this, and um, I was very pleased. To, and she, so I, I met with Linda online, and we started talking, and um, we decided to go for lunch at Union Square, and we had some beers and talked, and it turned out we actually had some things in common, and. Um, had a very similar writing styles. In fact, I, there's a play I had written a few years back called Strange Attractions was very similar to this about a woman dying in a hospital and family coming to terms with it. It's all very, you know, the story's been told a million times, but like how you tell it is sort of, you know, I think what Linda and I connected on. And we, we sort of, she has a definitely unique style. Anyway, so we, we talked and then I didn't hear from her for a couple of months and I had given her some script notes about what I think the, the play should be 
in order to be better. And, um, and she was very receptive to that, which usually writers are not. Um, usually writers, they don't want to hear it. And, and, and when you give them you know, a good line, they say, well, it was mine. I came up with it. But Linda's been very gracious about all of the creative stuff from the actors to, to the designers and, and to the writing. And then af- after six months, um, I figured, OK, I'm not going to hear from her again. I gave her some script notes. Who knows? And then she called me up and said, um, hey, I'm, I'm doing a show in a month. You know? I was like, OK, I'll, I'll do my best to find as many designers for you as I can. But, uh, and, and, then, and then we just went from there. But it's, it's been kind of amazing. And, and, you know, it's interesting in the theater. You know, one job definitely leads to the next. And it's just a question of how you get that, that first job. Is, it took 11 years. <laughs> you know? but, but once you start getting the jobs, they, they, people start finding you if you, you, if you if you leave the impression that you know what you're doing, <laughs> you may not necessarily know what you're doing, but as long as you, you make people think you are, you know. And so I've got Linda totally fooled. <laughs> now, um, is this a full-time gig for you yet? Uh, yeah. It, uh, well, the directing is taking over. I, I'm, a, I'm an acting coach and a teacher of writers uh, on the side. So there's uh, full-time as far as I'm concerned. You know, I'm, I'm living in the arts. So I hope that's what you mean. Yes. Yeah. That's very cool because I was actually meaning to ask, you know, Pursuing a career in directing has to be hard because it's so time-consuming even to get the jobs. Yeah, a lot absolutely. of times acting, okay, there's auditions and it does take up a lot of time, but I don't think it really quite compares with a director campaigning for the job. So I was kind of curious about how you you know, maybe set up your life to start moving and having the available time to take on what is also oftentimes very low-paying yeah, jobs. Yeah, often is. Uh, um, I've, what I do is I've sort of set up this... This is the process that's working for me. I have my own theater company called Invisible City Theater Company downtown. And we shift from theater to theater and we rent small spaces like everybody. <laughs> and, um, and the work seems to be doing well enough that people who have some sort of power are come in and want to expand things or take the plays that I'm doing and make them bigger. And so I find that in the downtime between gigs or jobs or looking for work is – by by simply putting up a production and making sure that the the production elements are right and that the acting is right, even though everybody's getting paid nothing and it's a dirt cheap production, you know, by taking the time to make sure that everything is professional as it can be, it, it seems to be the the formula for finding people to hire me as a director. And and it. it I, I didn't meet Linda that way, but I've met other people that way, and I and I feel like if I just keep going with that, just keep doing my thing on the side, and make sure that the right people kind of come to see it, then I'll always sort of have directing work. But it's like you can't just choose to be a director; you got to like make it happen from the the ground floor all by yourself first, impress people, and and at least in my experience, and then and that's when jobs will start coming. But it's not like the jobs are like coming in like a flood. It's like every yeah. year there's a couple of great gigs that are coming my way. Last year I worked with the guy who wrote Mystic River. He hired me to direct his first stage play, and that was a huge experience, a wonderful experience. It really put us on the map, and, and that was because he came and saw uh, a production of Arcadia. And the production of Arcadia was actually the, the first showcase production done in New York. So there was kind of some, you know, some, some buzz about the show. He came to see it and was, I think he was pretty much blown away. And, and so, I mean, it was this time we were in Manhattan Theater Store, which is a very small space, and we're doing our, Tom Stoppard's Arcadia with full <laughs> costumes. You know, I mean, it was unbelievable. I mean, we had some kahunas when we did that thing, but it, it turned out well. And, and, and it, that's sort of my formula now is just do, pick a great show that's really challenging. Make sure somebody who you want to come see it that can help you is going to be there and just pray to God, <laughs> you know. Now, how much involvement do you have uh, um, in your shows beyond just the directing? I mean, do you try to get actively involved with helping promote them? Because, you know, the lipstick on a pig here, you're doing this off-off Broadway? 
It's off Broadway. It's off Broadway. Yeah. Even still, a hard, uh, a hard sell kind of these days. Yeah. And it's it, what makes it a hard sell is that even when if you don't have you know a ten thousand dollar budget for advertising, it's like it, it rests on your actors and it rests on your designers and anybody who kind of cares about the play. I. You know, lipstick's a different thing for me in that it's it's an off-Broadway venture and there's there's a bigger team and um, the actors are a little high-caliber actors and it's it's been I've had to do less, but I I kind of I wish I, there was more for me to do, but like there's every, every job is taken care of. But when I'm doing small productions, I'm, <laughs> I'm designing sets, I'm putting the sound together, so I, I am a little anal retentive and I'm a kind of a control freak when it actually is in my court, you know. But with with Lipstick on a Pig, it's it's someone else's production, someone else's show, and I'm there to direct it and make sure that that falls into place. So I don't want to, like, step on too many toes, which is sort of a habit of, of mine when it comes to, like, especially when it's my own plays. You know, I don't want to... People are like, how come you don't let other people direct your own stuff? And I'm like, mm, I don't know. I, I, I need to be in charge. And, and so with Lipstick, I've had to sort of... I want to sort of pull back a little bit and, and just focus on the directing and, and not turn into a control freak, which most directors are. <laughs> but I'm trying my best to, to keep my distance from, you know, getting on the producer's toes, getting on the set designer's toes. I mean, these people all know what they're doing. And, and sometimes you have, have a tendency to, when you're in charge, to, like, get so frazzled by the situation that you start to talk down to people and you start to take it way more seriously than you should. And the whole thing's supposed to be fun, you know. And I, I try to remind my actors of that every day and the designers. And the, sometimes the producers get upset about things. And I say, hey, hey, you know, even if we fail miserably, you know, we fail more if we don't have fun now in this process, you know. So long, yeah. long response. Yeah, so... Uh... <laughs> Now, how long has the script been in development, and how long have you been working with the script before you actually started in rehearsals? Uh, Linda's been working on it for, I, I think, a, a year. I, I think a year. I don't know. And then she brought it to me. We worked on it for a couple, like two months together, and then she went away. So I think a year, you know, and uh, we, st- we, we made the decision to stop making script changes about three weeks ago just because, you know, actors need to memorize their lines and we don't want to keep changing things. And I think that once the process is done, my experience with original scripts is that Linda will, again, go over the script and, and tweak it once more, especially if there's interest in it and people want to bring it elsewhere, which I think is it's possible. But, you know, it's, it's always good to be hopeful. You want to mention your actors in the show? Yeah, I've got... Um, Dennis Hearn, who's amazing, a wonderful giving actor, and Krista Kimlico-Jones and John Farrell and Alexis Croucher. Uh, they're all giving, and I have to say it, they're just giving absolutely amazing performances. It is not an easy play. It's, I'm a, I'm, I came to New York to be an actor 10 years ago, and I, I gave up on that after about six years and found that th- this was easier for me. But when I look at these roles and I see what is required of them to do in an hour and a half, I'm... I'm it's going to be it's mesmerizing and it, it's been a long haul for the four of us and it's it's the kind of thing that I absolutely if you if you like watching actors which is what plays are all about and about the sets you know and as much as the set designer wants to believe that you know it's about the actors and these four actors absolutely are giving stellar performances where they've made my job easier as a director and usually it's just not that way. Usually you have, you're pulling teeth. And with these guys, it's, it's, it's been a magical journey. It really has been. And I know that sounds cheesy, but it, it's the truth. They're, they're doing a, just a knock-up job, if there's such a thing. All right. Well, so what's all the magic information? Where do they go? When? The show is at uh, the Samuel Beckett Theater at Theater Row. And May 18th to June 3rd, you can go to www.ticketcentral.com. It's going to be a great show. All right. Well, I know that this must be a crazy time in the process for you, so I'm glad you were able to find some time to come down and talk with us. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. Okay.
top of the trades. Tony Award winner Jane Krakowski and former renter Tay Diggs will announce the nominations for the 61st annual Antoinette Perry Tony Awards. A Tony Award winner for her work in Nine, Jane Krakowski was previously seen on Broadway in Andrew Lloyd Webber's Starlight Express and the revival of Stephen Sondheim's company. Tay Diggs has appeared on Broadway in Wicked, Carousel, Rent, and Chicago. He received an Outer Critics Circle Award nomination for his performance in Off-Broadway's The Wild Party and was recently seen in A Soldier's Play. Oh, this segment is quickly becoming one of my favorites, and it's because of the hilarious wonder of stories like the following four. Okay, screen star Orlando Bloom, known for his work in Lord of the Rings and the Pirates of the Caribbean's films, is scheduled to make his London stage debut. Variety reports that the actor will star in a revival of David Story's In Celebration. Anna Mackman will direct the 1969 drama, which will be produced by Sonia Freeman. No dates, theater, or additional casting have been announced. Pretty much, I believe the producer said it's hard to find a female to play opposite him that's prettier than uh, Orlando Bloom. And it's hard to find people who are willing to play opposite his oh-so-pretty-boy face. <laughs> anyway, um, Variety speculates that a July opening at Trafalgar Studios is likely. Roundabout Theatre Company, in associate with Boyette Ostar Productions, David Babani, Carol Newling for Neal Street Productions, and Mark Rubenstein... Yes, the producer lists they are a-getting longer. Has announced that Olivier Award winners Daniel Evans and Jenna Russell will reprise their roles as George and Dot in the Menier Chocolate Factory's Olivier Award-winning production of Stephen Sondheim and James Lapine's Pulitzer Prize-winning musical Sunday in the Park with George, directed by Sam Buntrock. Yes, there have been that many awards in that one sentence. And I tell you, nothing screams bringing warmth and humanity to Stephen Sondheim's Sunday in the Park with George like a couple of Brits. <laughs> Sunday in the Park with George will begin previews on January 18th, 2008 and open officially February 14th, 2008 at Studio 54 on Broadway. This will be a limited engagement. According to the official spokesperson for Rent, original cast members Adam Pascal and Anthony Rapp will return to the Broadway production of Rent this summer. They will once again play the roles of Roger and Mark, respectively, for six weeks from July 30th through September 9th. No word has been announced as to how they will incorporate the actors' walkers into the choreography. And last, but certainly not least, I mean, I wish I made this up. You can't make this up! Acclaimed singer-songwriter Tori Amos, who recently released the album American Doll Posse, told MeMeMe.TV that she has been, drumroll please, writing a musical. Amos told the website, quote, I think I'm writing a musical. I'm gushing, but I'm under lock and key. Unquote. Although Amos won't appear in the musical, she plans to write all the songs. She stated, quote, I'm trying to be Tim Rice. Yes, Weber and Rice. I'm trying to be both, so I'm busy. This is such a big project. A double record, 23 songs in the extras. You need to hear Smoke and Joe about how to kill a man. End quote. I really wish I was making that up, but I will go on to say that she added, I plan on studying the masters of dramatic and musical theater form, people like Mamma Mia and Aida. And when leaving the room, she was overheard saying, if that one-hit wonder Duncan Sheik can revive his career with a musical, I ought to be able to, don't you think? Top of the Trades is sponsored by BroadwayWorld.com. Visit Broadway World for your daily source for theater news and 
great uh, discussion and community. Top of the Trades will be back next week with all the best theater news. Curtain Call. We've got something very special in our podcast feed. If you look, in addition to this brand new episode, there's also a special episode. You didn't get it, probably, because your settings are set to just download the most recent episode. And that's all right. This next episode might not be for everybody, but if you're at all interested in the Russian theater, we've got a treat. Sophia Roma, who was on episode one as a playwright talking about her off-Broadway play, Absolute Clarity, brought together a fine, fine panel of uh, Russian actors, a Russian director, and herself to talk about the culture of Russian theater, their history, where they're at, culture of it, how it's changing, what it used to be, Stanislavski. Um, if you're an intellectual theater geek, it's an episode not to miss. So it's uh, it's about an hour long. It's a great discussion. Huh? Pick it up to fill up another subway ride or commute and feel your brain capacity expand. Well, that's about it this week. Um, I'm real busy at the moment because I'm interviewing a bunch of potential new interns for Broadway Bullet. Again, we've appreciated the help that we've had so far. Also, I am waiting to hear still at this point if I will be getting press credentials to go backstage at all the Tony events. So hopefully next week I'll be able to actually bring you some backstage conversations from the press luncheon of the Tony nominees. I don't want to promise anything, and I hope you won't get really disappointed if they won't give it to me. After all, this is my first year in existence as a show, but let's see if they take us seriously. Uh, hopefully I'll find out very soon. Well, once again, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and I want to thank everybody for hopping aboard the Broadway Bullet, and we'll see you next week. Actually, the barfait thing comes from my whole life. People just going vulture, boggler. So it didn't take much, though, when he um, proposed. I said yes. It's fun to know that those lines will stay in the show when other actors do it in the future. The hairs went up on the back of my neck. It was a thrilling moment. things with the audience and explore them a little bit. So, a little more about our brand new theater and business arts major. I know what most theater programs are like, and I've talked to thousands of artists. All of this told me that a new style of theater major was needed. Theater majors can get a pretty good arts education just about anywhere, but most programs do very little to prepare actors, directors, playwrights, technicians, producers, etc. to manage their careers. When you go into the arts, you are your own business, and you need to manage that to strategically plan for your career to grow. If you've listened to many of these interviews, you know you need to be self-starters to create your own opportunities. I'm going to make sure you are ready for that world. You'll get a ton of opportunities as an undergraduate. Actors will act, even as freshmen. Designers will design shows right away. Playwrights will see their shows mounted. Directors will direct. Producers will handle shows from inception to execution. Outstanding guest artists will conduct workshops, and outstanding students will even work on this podcast and travel to New York with me for interview weeks. And 
If that isn't enough, we've got an amazing program that will pay all or part of your student loan payments, even private loans, if you are earning less than $40,000 six months after graduation. That is an invaluable option that lets you pursue your passion in theater with less financial pressure. If interested, and I hope you are, go to broadwaybullet.com. I'd love to help you launch your career.